Recorded live from here, there, and everywhere, this is Transformation Thursday with another Safe at Home edition. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Mike Robbins. He's the author of five books, including his brand new title, We're All in This Together, which can be ordered wherever you get your finest books. We'll be speaking with Mike and how we're all in this together, building teams since the Me Too movement started, and why it's so important now. Our conversation with Mike Robbins will begin about a minute after our traditional music swell and fade up. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loonie, and a few British tenors from when I was in London because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses. And by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure, I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I am Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her, too. And our guest this evening is Mike Robbins, an author of five books, including his brand new title, We're All In This Together, which I just heard drop like today or yesterday. So um, he's a sought-after speaker whose clients include Google, Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Schwab, eBay, and the NBA. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, and his books have been translated into 15 different languages. Ooh, so my first question for you, Mike, is which of those 15 languages should we speak to you in? <laughs> the, the only one that I know, which is English, although not all the time. So thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on, and my pronouns are he, him, just as we're having that conversation. I appreciate being here. Thank you for that. And by the way, I just want to let you know that I actually, I, I can say I am going downstairs in, I think, seven different languages. Really? Yes. It's the only phrase I know in seven different languages, <laughs> but I do know it. That's good. So if, if Why get, do you know it? Uh, it's, it's a, I was working, I, I used to work in television and I was working on a Spanish language uh, program. I was editing for, for somebody and his office was upstairs and I was editing downstairs. So I kept on running up and down. And whenever I had a question about something, I would say, is this what this means? Is that what that means? And he would tell me yes or no. And I work on that. And, um, and we got into a conversation about something else. And then I started to leave and he goes, where are you going? And I said, I'm going downstairs. And then I stopped and I said, how do you say that in Spanish? Just out of a goofiness. And he goes, yo uh, voy para abajo. And so I started saying, yo voy para abajo. And then, and then I got, uh, and then I got um, 
Let's see, I got uh, Italian. Yeah, the and Dando Jew. We're gonna get all seven here. It sounds <laughs> yeah. like. Yeah. Well, what, what, one of them is one of them is sign language, so that's really not going to translate well. Yeah, it's no, nice. not to a podcast. No, that's not what we want to talk about here. We want to talk Mike and his book. We're all on this yeah. together. What is this? This that we're together in, Mike. Well, it depends on whatever this is that's important to us. I mean, I you know I really wrote this book for a couple of reasons. The first primary reason is that for the last 20 years, the work that I've done with a lot of the clients that we work with, you know, big companies like Google and Wells Fargo and Microsoft and others have brought me in to speak and to work with teams on, you know, how do you create a culture where people can perform and trust each other and really connect. The secondary reason though that I wrote this book and specifically wanted it to be called We're All In This Together and have it come out in 2020 here in the spring um, was just because of the incredible amount of divisiveness that we've seen in our country and our world in the last few years. Not that that's anything new necessarily, but there's a, a level of intensity to it that I started to experience myself that I found and still find alarming and concerning. So I wanted to write a book about that in my own experience from my own research on how we can come together more and find common ground with each other. Now, of course, I had no idea when I was writing this book last year um, that it was going to come out in the midst of a global pandemic where the phrase of the moment seems to be lots of people are saying we're all in this together. And that sort of happened to coincide with the book coming out. But this uh, isn't some sort of clever marketing ploy. is no, it? No, please. Not at all. Uh, definitely. Although I get text messages from friends all the time saying, I just heard someone on TV say your book title again. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it just happened to be that way. So, so you mentioned in there the divisiveness. So, and mm -hmm. it seems to be on the rise. You know, in your research, did you um, did you discover anything that was like, oh wow, this really surprises me of why this happens the way it does, or is it pretty much you know because we're all in an echo chamber on our social media? I mean, I think look, we we do know that in the over the last decade, in particular, as social media has really expanded, as we have more platforms. I mean, the upside is we can have this conversation here on your podcast. It can be broadcast out to the world, which is fantastic. And people can listen to it and engage in this conversation in ways they couldn't 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because the technology didn't exist. The downside is that now we get into these echo chambers and we start communicating with other people who we think, you know, sort of share values with us. And in some cases they do, but it becomes that we start living in these different little pockets and creating our own realities for each other. And, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about in the book, I mean, so look, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm cisgender, I'm male. I'm all of these things that on the surface, one would look at me and assume, oh, well, you know, he's a member of all of these sort of dominant groups, which I am, and has a certain amount of privilege, which I do. But I grew up in a way, I grew up in Oakland, California, raised by a single mom, and as a white kid going to school, playing sports, particularly by the time I got to junior high and high school, like I was the only white kid on our basketball team my, my junior year in high school. Not only was I the only white kid on the team, I was the only white kid in the whole league. Every single other kid was African-American. And while I was definitely aware of that experience as a 17-year-old, as I got older and looked back on my experience growing up in that environment, what I realized was it didn't somehow give me some special power. I don't know what it's like to be anything else but me. But what I did experience for a significant amount of time, particularly as, ad, as an adolescent in some formative years, was what it's like to be in the minority and be other than the majority, which again, most people who look like me and have the similar gender identity that I do, have the similar race and you know all of those things, don't have that experience as much. So as I've traveled around the world 
over the last couple decades doing this work, what I've noticed is for some of us, it's harder to notice the differences and try to figure out how we find common ground. For other people, depending on their identity and their background, they've spent most of their life trying to figure out how do I navigate the world being somewhat different than the majority. And so part of what I wanted to do with this book was how do we collectively have that conversation in a more authentic way so that we can really hear each other. That's amazing. Uh, you talked about um, growing up in Oakland as a, uh, a child of a single mother. Um, we, we're kind of fans of origin stories here. So mm. how, did, how did we get from uh, sports kid <laughs> in, in Oakland to a guy who has a book in 15 different languages, only 14, only 14 of which he can't even speak? <laughs> right. Are well, you sure not even saying the right thing in those languages? I have no idea. Sometimes, you know, it's funny. So when they'll send us foreign copies of books and usually I can figure out what it is, but every now and again, I have to take a picture and post it on social media and say, does anyone know what language this is? Because I literally have no idea. Um, I mean, basically, you know, I grew up as a kid in Oakland playing sports. I played basketball, as I mentioned, but I was, my main sport was baseball and I was pretty good at it. I actually got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. I didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got a chance to play baseball in college at Stanford. So I go to Stanford and I play baseball there. Then I got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals and I signed a pro contract. And the way that it works in baseball, you get drafted by a major league team like the Yankees or the Royals or the Blue Jays or any of the teams in the major leagues, you have to go into the minor leagues, right? And there's a bunch of levels of the minor leagues. You got to work your way up to get to the major leagues. Unfortunately for me, I was still in the minors my third season in. I went out to pitch one night. I threw one pitch. I tore ligaments in my elbow. I blew my arm out. Mm. I ended up having three surgeries over the next two years. Tried everything I possibly could to come back because I love playing baseball but I wasn't able to make it back. So I was forced to retire at the age of 25 and I started playing baseball when I was seven. Um, and it was personally devastating as you can imagine, because this had been like my identity, my focus, my, you know, again, kid from a single family, you know, single family home in, in Oakland, not a lot of money. I figured I'd make it to the big leagues. I'd make some money. I'd be important. I, you know, but what I realized when my career ended a couple things, first thing I realized was I had wasted most of my time and energy all those years worrying that I wasn't good enough, comparing myself to everyone around me and like, you know, just stressing myself out that when it ended, I thought, oops, I think I missed the point. And what I also realized was like, oh, I want to figure that out for myself now as a human being moving forward. How do I appreciate what I have while I have it instead of after the fact, something we're all experiencing a lot of right now, all these things that we're missing and appreciating that we didn't even realize we were appreciating. But collectively, I also became really fascinated with team dynamics and team culture because I learned as an athlete, and I also had learned this growing up in the diverse environment that I grew up, that what makes a great team or a great community or a great family isn't so much about each individual themselves being a rock star, being perfect, being because nobody is. It's about the collective environment that gets created that allows people to connect with each other and bring out the best in each other or not. And after, you know, I, I left the sports world, went into the tech world in the late 90s and realized, oh, there's a lot of similar dynamics here. I want to focus my life and my work on understanding how human beings can work better together and relate to each other more effectively. And that's really what I committed myself to a couple decades ago and have continued to do. And that's what the books I write are all about and what I get to speak about, which is uh, kind of a cool way to make a living. <laughs> 
That is a, that's a very awesome way to make a living. And it sounds like you learned a lot of good lessons through self-reflection. So how did you tie those into the cores and themes and the pillars even of if we're all in this together now? Well, you know, I mean, after doing this for the last two decades, um, I've learned a lot of stuff along the way, you know, a lot of research, but also a lot of experience, like just from being around really smart people, really interesting people, really different types of people. A lot of what I share in my books, this book's no different, are stories from my own life, but from that I hear from people on my own podcast or from clients of mine or just listening to people. And what I find is, and look, the two of you know this, and I'm sure a lot of what you do here on this podcast is hear people's stories, share your own stories. And even though your story and my story may be very different in terms of the specifics of it, the transformation of it, usually what I find, and I don't mean to oversimplify this because we're all complex and we all have our own beautiful, unique stories. But when you go down below the, the, the surface of the waterline, I like to, to say on the iceberg, the further down we go, the more similar we become. And it's not that we're similar in terms of, you know, how we look or where we came from or our gender identity or our race or our background or our age or all those things that make us really different. But what's similar is the human experience of joy and pain, of excitement and sadness, of, you know, desire and disappointment, of all of the things that we experience as human beings. And the, the closer we get to people, as much as they may look different than us on the surface and may seem really different than we are, when we're able to lower the waterline on the iceberg, all of a sudden what happens is we start to realize like, oh, you feel that? I feel that. And it's, you know, again, one of the beautiful paradoxes of life, especially in the diverse world we live in now and, and understand more deeply is that we're all unique. And yet at the same time, we have so much similarity as humans. It's a, that's fascinating and amazing. And I'm, and I'm sitting here thinking about how can I use that in my own life when I'm, when I'm dealing with people um, whose default about me is that I am less than human, that I am, right. uh, that I am fundamentally a liar about things, that I am uh, any number of perverted things that I am not. Right. And when, when I'm, when you're, in a, when you're at a, a marginalized position, yeah. how can this, how can you get people who are less marginalized to be aware? You know, I, look, I mean, you know this way better than I do from your lived experience. Um, and I think when it comes to, again, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of talking to the two of you about this, who know this and experience this, but when it comes to gender identity specifically, my own personal experience, and as I talk to people about it, I think one of the biggest issues is that people just get scared and don't understand. Now that's not in some way a pass for people treating you or anyone else less than human by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that when we don't experience something, so the assumption that we make is I can't relate to you because your experience is so different. I don't understand what that's like or what that feels like. Again, a lot of us walk around in life just assuming people are the way we are and think the way we think and operate the way we operate and have the same desires that we and realize, oh, people don't. And I remember it's different, but as a kid, one of the things that I remember, we had a neighbor two doors down who was really good friends with my mom. And what was interesting, and I remember my mom talking to me about this as like a seven-year-old, and she really liked this man, Hill, and he was our neighbor two doors down. And I was trying, why do you like him so much? And they were really good friends and he'd come over and, and she said, well, one of the things that I really like about him is that he's gay and I feel safe around him. 
And I'm like, she's telling the seven-year-old kid this. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, I can just have a relationship with him and there's nothing weird about it. And I didn't know what she was talking about. She said, but another thing is that I don't feel like he judges me as a single mom. I mean, this is 1979. And my mom was raised on the East Coast as a Catholic school girl. And she had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt about being a divorced woman with two young kids, but felt by her friend, Hill, and they would sort of commiserate in a way, as I learned later in life, that Hill was dealing with being a gay man in 1979, even in Oakland, California, this relatively open and progressive. And the two of them could bond around their different experiences, but similar experiences of feeling a little bit ostracized, if you will. And then what I appreciated about that as I grew up and got to be older and then became an adolescent and started to hear kids, other boys in particular, say things that were um, homophobic that I didn't understand. And they would talk about gay people in this way that I was like, wait a minute. And in my mind, I thought about my neighbor, this man who became almost like an uncle to me. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. But I had that real lived experience of someone in my life that if I hadn't, again, I don't know what I would have been doing on the schoolyard or in the dugout with my teammates, but I might've been right there in there saying those things simply out of ignorance and just out of fear. Did you call them on their homophobia and how did that how do you do that i mean it's on a baseball team especially oh it's 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 not easy i mean one of the things that that i learned um early on and again i think look in general the way we sort of train our little boys and little girls as you know right we a lot of sort of direct and indirect training of how you're supposed to be and one of the things that became both challenging for me, but I took it on as a challenge as I moved through adolescence and into young adulthood was like, there were times that things would get said that were racist or sexist or homophobic that I didn't speak up because I was scared. I didn't know what to say. And the interesting thing, again, growing up where I grew up, there was actually quite a bit of racial conversation that happened in the direction of sort of negativity against white people as totally makes sense growing up in a predominantly African-American community. So being the target of some of that was both scary to me, but interesting. But then seeing again, teenage boys sort of bond around some of the homophobia, for me, when I started to speak up and there were times that I did speak up and then got some of that hate sort of thrown in my direction, I had to back up and I got scared like, wait a minute, I don't know what to do. And it was, wasn't an easy thing to navigate. And I think in general, as I've been talking about some of these issues in the last few years, specifically around, you know, talking to other cisgender men like me about aspects of um, sexual assault and sexual harassment and things that aren't as overt as a lot of cisgender men think about like, oh, well, I don't do that. Well, I don't say that. Well, I would never put up with that. It's like, yeah, but the little subtle things that you don't think are a thing or that you don't want to all of a sudden break some kind of code and make an issue out of something. So that's a long answer to your simple question, but it's not easy to do, but it's really important for us to do. And I think at the end of the day, what I've tried to do over the course of my life and especially try to do now is check in with myself for how can I be as authentic as possible in those moments and let people know truthfully, like, I'm uncomfortable with that, or that doesn't work for me, as opposed to even when I think someone is saying or doing something that I think is wrong, if I come at them with that self-righteousness, like you're wrong or shut up or that's terrible, unless they're actually harming someone in the moment, what the natural response to self-righteousness is defensiveness. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of our political arguments don't go anywhere because we're fighting righteousness with righteousness. 
Yeah. As you're saying this, a thought that came to my head, I don't know if this is even a valid thought, is do you think it is possible for people who have only experienced privilege to be able to uh, recognize this connection that they're having? Is, is, is that something that is, comes to them naturally or is that something that needs to be teased out of them? I think it's a good question. I mean, I think, look, privilege is a really tricky thing for most of us to identify in life. There was a story that I found when I was researching for the book that I thought was fantastic about a high school teacher and how he teaches his students about privilege. He said what he does is he gives everyone in the class a piece of white paper and says, crumple this piece of paper up into a ball. And from your seat, what I would like for you to do, he puts a little garbage can in front of the classroom. He says, this can represents success, making it in our you know, American culture. So everyone's got a shot. I want you to throw your paper ball from your seat into the can. And if you make it, you made it. You're, you're rich and famous, successful, whatever that looks like. And immediately says what happens is the kids get excited to do it, but the kids in the back of the class start going, hold on a second, this isn't fair. The kids up front get an easier shot. And he's like, look, the can's about 10 feet away from the front row, so it's not a slam dunk, but clearly the kids up front have an easier shot. And then he stops them as they all start you know, getting upset, especially the kids in the back. And he says, hold on, now t- let's take a look at this. Everyone does have a shot. So this is the land of opportunity, but some people's shot is a lot harder than others. And he said, those of you sitting in the front, your first thought was probably not like, hey, I got an easy shot or let me look back and help the people behind me. No, you're trying to figure out how am I going to make it 10 feet so I get it into the can. And he said, notice who's complaining the most. It's the people in the back because they have the toughest shot. And then he said, I end the lesson by explaining that, that there are lots of things in life that we don't think of privileges that are really privileges and education is a privilege that not everybody has access to. And it's what you do with your privilege that really matters. You can help other people who may not have access. So what I think is challenging is that when most of us think of privilege, we think of like being born with a silver spoon in our mouth. And the vast majority of people, again, even people who look like me, weren't born that way. So they think, oh, so-and-so has it easier than me. Therefore, I don't have the same kind of, what are you talking about privilege? What are you talking, you know, and what I think we have to do is start to educate people more on what privilege actually is. That all of us have some privilege. Some of us just have more than others. And it's not inherently a bad thing. You can simultaneously have privilege, which I do. I have an enormous amount of privilege. And you can also work really hard in your life to try to create opportunities and success for yourself. But one of the things that I look at and realize, like if I were born gay or if I were born and you know realized that I was not born in the right body for me if I were born African-American if I were born Asian if I were born with a disability like my life would look different than it looks right now now would it be better would it be worse would it be harder I don't know but I know it would be different and it probably would have been more challenging if any of those things were factors in my life that I'd have to contend with in order to have the life that I have right now that doesn't invalidate my life and mean that I somehow don't deserve it or it was super easy because I know my own life story. It wasn't. But the reality is we have to have a more authentic conversation around privilege to begin with before we can really then talk about some of these other things. And for a lot of people, particularly, again, people who look like me, it's hard to have that conversation around privilege because there's a lot of defense. You know, Robin D'Angelo wrote this great book, White Fragility. And one of the things she talks about, she's a professor at the University of Washington. She talks about the fact that for many white people, literally the accusation of racism is worse than actual racism. Meaning calling a white person racist is somehow more offensive to a lot of white people than actually looking at and dealing with systemic racism that exists and impacts people of color, which is kind of crazy. But at the same time, in some weird twisted way, makes sense to me that people have a hard time acknowledging oh, I'm a part of that system and I may be benefiting from that system, but like, I don't look like the people in the movie that I watched 
from the Civil War South who were doing all kinds of terrible things, so therefore I must not be racist. But in reality, like you can be racist and still like a normal, nice person walking down the street and thinking good thoughts and trying to do the right thing. Both of those things can be true. And as I hear you talking through this explanation around privilege and, you know, recognizing racism, but going back to your book and some of your thoughts, but there's a big difference between recognition and appreciation. Yes, for sure. And so you're, you're speaking that language already, and I can hear it in the way you're talking. So yes. know, let's talk about that concept at a high level. So that way, you know, we can get people into your book as well. So, I mean, yes. where does that, how does that play out for most people? How do you get people from recognizing to that appreciation? Well, and the way I talk about it usually and in the book and when I'm working with teams and people, I talk about the distinction between recognition and appreciation in a certain way. And the context of your question is super important. And also I'll answer both the question and that difference because they're related. The difference is really recognition is more about in, in think about this in the business context at work, you do something, it could be at home too, but you do something, there's something that some activity that you perform or some result that you produce and you're recognized for it. Good job. Thank you for taking out the trash. Thank you for producing that result. Thank you for doing a great job. That's recognition in baseball when I was an athlete, right? It's like you win the game and everyone cheers and says, you did a great job, right? You get the game ball. You were the star of the game. Appreciation, on the other hand, is about recognizing people's value. It's more about who they are. Recognition is more about what we do. Appreciation is more about who we are. So the reason why this is important when I talk about it to leaders and to teams is we want to separate out people's performance, right? This could also be even behavior to some degree versus inherently who they are. Because inherently who people are, we're valuable as human beings. We're deserving of respect. We're deserving of appreciation of, right, that connection, care, irrespective of, you know, I don't have to like you, by the way, to appreciate you. I can value you as a human being and decide, you know what, you're not my favorite person. We don't get along. We don't have anything in common. It's difficult for us to communicate. That happens in life, in families, let alone especially at work. But we can still value each other. Recognition is a reaction to something that you've done that I deem to be positive, and I'm going to recognize you for it, either informally, like, hey, good job, or more formally, like, I'm going, you're going to get a promotion because I'm in a leadership position where I can deem that and give you a raise or give you a new job or something to that effect. And so separating these two things out, what we learn and what we realize is that recognition is specific, is finite, is, a, is conditional, and appreciation is expansive and abundant and unconditional. And so when we're talking about some of these issues, recognizing something, understanding something, seeing something is an important part of the process, right? If we're going to change, doing something about it is something completely different. And that's why even as I talk to people, particularly, again, I keep coming back to this, people who look like me and say, look, it's one thing. First of all, we got to pay attention to and understand there are issues going on that maybe we weren't paying attention to, right? Someone who's cisgender, like me, isn't going to naturally pay attention to and understand the world of transgender because that's not the world that I operate in or think about. That doesn't mean I can't pay attention, but I have to first recognize, oh, there's something going on. You're having an experience that I'm not currently having. I don't know what it's like, so I got to listen and pay attention. But more than just listening and paying attention and understanding, which is the first part, if things are going to change, me and many other people have to start not only listening and understanding, but doing something different, changing not only the language, but the mindset and the actions that take place that impact the environment and the community that we're in. That sounds like a lot of work. It is. <laughs> 
how do you get people how do you get people to do that how do you get people to embrace that and and then and believe in the payoff to something like that well that's a good question i mean the, the truth of the matter is and look let's look at the world um a lot of people aren't willing to do that work or or haven't been able to or don't see the payoff or the benefit right and at some level one of the things look after the election in 2016 for me personally this is actually where this book and this idea were all in this together really birthed for me initially i wrote a post right after the election in 2016 and it was called an open letter to my fellow straight white men i didn't use the term cisgender i didn't even know what cisgender meant back then to be perfectly honest with you but my and my what i did was write something here's my concern i've been paying attention to this election over the last couple of years as i think many people have I did not think it was going to go this way. I'm very upset about how it went. And now we're going to move into a new phase in our country that deeply concerns me. And what I think needs to happen from my perspective is that a lot of people like me, straight, white, male, we need to step forward and do more and pay more attention and speak up. And right now, what was interesting about putting that out, I did not expect this because I don't write stuff like that normally. That's not the nature of my work, but I got all of this. I got a lot of positive response, but all of this hate and really nasty, like I like it upset me personally. And I was like, why are people calling me horrible names and saying all kinds of things about me? Like, that's weird. And in my process around that, the following week, I wrote a follow-up post called, we're all in this together. And what I was basically saying was like, look, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to see the world the way I see it. But at some level, if this ship sinks, and I was talking about America, right? We're all going down all together. And so like somehow or another, we have to figure out a way to find some common ground and be able to disagree with each other. And so over the course of the last few years, as things have un unfolded the way they have in our country, what I've started to become more aware of myself, and, and this has been my own personal commitment, is that I believe that part of having privilege is a willingness to use it in a positive way, to spend the capital, if you will, whatever analogy we want to use. Now, do you have to do that? No. And the truth of the matter is many of us, myself included at times, if we're really honest and people don't like to talk about this, we don't want to really talk about or use our privilege out of fear of losing it. Because most of us who have any privilege that we have, we like it. It, right? it works for me. It works for us, if you will. But collectively, I don't think it works for us on the whole. And I think we're all paying the price. So at some level, is it hard work? Yeah. Does it directly pay off in the moment? Well, it depends. But what I, my passion in this book and with my work right now is to talk to leaders inside of businesses to say, look, this is not just a politically correct thing. This is not just a sounds good for the media thing and gets people off your back. This is a how you tap into the greatness of human beings is creating an environment that's authentically inclusive and really has people feel like they belong irrespective of their identity, their background, their story. And in some situations, again, and the two of you know this way better than I do, it takes a lot more to create an environment that's that inclusive and that really focuses on belonging so that people don't just give it lip service, but you really do feel like you belong. Yeah, the people with power are the ones that need to buy in on this. And so that's, that's and I'm just really happy that you're doing this work because you're, like you say, you're the one that needs to, lead in this unfortunately we amy and i can shout this for until we're blue in the face but until until the people with privilege buy into it it's not going to change well and we I don't have that much eyeshadow either especially <laughs> the blue color well and, and you know what i think though i mean i do think that it's 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 all of us together because the reality is again the two of you 
on this show and with this platform can speak to and speak in a way with authenticity, with personal experience of knowing exactly, here's what my lived experience has been. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've seen. Here's where things aren't working. Here's where things were making progress. Like I can't speak with that level of authenticity and authority and understanding because I don't walk in the same shoes you walk in at the same time. To your point, there are people that will listen to me talk about some of these things who won't listen to people who don't look like me. Because one of the things, and again, this is not about catering all to the, oh, the poor, you know, straight, white, cisgender men like me, not at all. But what I have learned over the years, there are a lot of really good intentioned, open-minded, open-hearted people like me who are just quite frankly scared and confused and don't know what to do, what to say afraid of offending, afraid of causing problems, afraid of creating issues for themselves and others. And like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm trying to do the right thing, but I keep now getting accused of doing these terrible things. And like, I don't understand what's going on. The rules of the game keep changing. And so I think we all can do a better job of figuring out how to have empathy and compassion and translate at the same time as challenge people to do both. I mean, the final principle in my book is called care about and challenge each other. This is what great leaders do. This is what great teams do. We care about people. I value you. I care about you. I have your back. And we challenge each other. Meaning like we call each other out, but in a way that calls people in. Hey, like that doesn't work. Or hey, that really upsets people or offends people. Or, you know, unconsciously, there are so many things that people do and say all the time that they have no idea are causing pain and disconnection for the people around them, but just aren't aware of it. And people either haven't spoken up to say anything or they haven't heard it in a way that actually changes their behavior. But it's not like they wake up in the morning and go, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna be a jerk and just upset everyone and piss people off. Like, no, they're just trying to get through the day like everybody else. You know, think about the moment that we're in right now during this pandemic. It's like, I love my wife, Michelle. I love our daughters, Rosie and Samantha, who are 14 and 11. But like there are moments I've been awful with them, not on purpose, not like I woke up and said, let me just be a jerk right now. But like, I'm stressed out. And this whole situation is like not, you know, we all wanted more time with our families, but like not quite like this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so again, it's like we have to have some empathy and compassion for ourselves and for each other. Because I believe, again, without being overly Pollyanna about it, and even with all the issues we're, we're talking about, at the core, most people I've met over my, the course of my life, even the ones I really don't like and can't stand, I think most people have good intentions and they're doing the best they can. I don't think that people are wired in a way and just wake up in the morning trying to cause harm to other people. And if they're doing that, not to give them a pass, they're usually in a ton of pain themselves and it's just manifesting that way. So I try, and it's easy for me, it's part of my privilege, I try not to take it personally and I try to walk away from the situation or disengage as much as I can. Like, hey, that's not about me. They got something going on. I'm going to try to support them as best I can. But like, you know, sort of what's the saying, you know, not my monkeys, not my circus. Like, I'm good. I'm just going to move the other direction. <laughs> you know, but, but as, we're, as we're talking here, one of the things Penny and I have discussed, you know, on the show, and I think, you know, when corporations can figure out how to monetize equality, we're going to really see that envelope be pushed. And I yes. think, and especially with our current governmental leadership, especially at the federal level and regionally around the country, right. is we are seeing corporations today pushing this envelope of saying, we need equality now for everybody. So yes. are you able to have, do you have stories that, you know, even anecdotally that can say, hey, this corporate, this company was doing this. And once they kind of made that hard cultural change towards more inclusion and equality, they saw benefit from it. 
You know, I, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, we see this a lot. And, and one of the concerns I know a number of my friends, particularly who are working in the diversity and inclusion and equity space are concerned about right now is there has been quite a bit of resource and investment by a number of big companies over the last, you know, many years. One of the things we took our daughters a couple of years ago to the Gay Pride Parade in San Francisco, which we had gone to for many years when we lived in the city and then we moved to the burbs and the girls were young and we were like, let's wait till it's a little more age appropriate for them with you know, some of the fun stuff. But what was funny is my, my wife, Michelle, and I both commented the first time we went back to the Pride Parade was a couple of years ago and went, oh my goodness, it's, first of all, it's way different than it used to be. It's way more tame. And I mean that from the standpoint of all of these corporations sponsor and they have huge contingents. You know, you got Google and you got Facebook and you got all these tech companies that are marching in the parade, super proud, you know, t-shirts on, flags waving, the whole thing. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Because here they are in the San Francisco Bay Area realizing number one, a ton of their customers and their customer base are from this community as well as a number of their employees. And so it's good business for them to say, hey, we need to sponsor this. And you know, now at the, at the core, and I do partner with Google and a number of other tech companies, and I know there's some really good open-minded people in senior leadership positions there, but look, these are for-profit profit businesses that are looking at the bottom line. And one of the things that we now know is that more diverse teams produce better results. So it's in the company's best interest to hire a diverse um, you know, population and depending on the type of product or service they're providing, you know, and again, the two of you could speak to this better than me, but people, when they don't see any representation of themselves in any of the marketing or advertising or whatever, it's not that you're not going to use the product, but you're probably less likely to, if you have other options. And if all of a sudden you see like, Oh, they did something or said something or took a stand for or invested in something that relates to me and my community who matters to me, I'm that much more prone to want to support that brand or that company. And so brand loyalty in today's world through social media and otherwise is so much more important. And we see it all over the place. And the companies and organizations that don't get that, they're just stuck, you know, if not 10, 20, 30 years back, and they're not going to be able to evolve as things change moving forward in the future. You know, Mike Robbins, if I wasn't isolated here, I think I would go out and buy your book right now. <laughs> That's, that what a, Amazon, that's what Amazon you, yeah, is you for, Yeah, you can get it online, so it's there. <laughs> yeah, well, this has been a very fascinating conversation. Uh, you're, you're an amazing man, and I'm really glad you agreed to be on our show. Uh, it's the, the name of the book is We're All in This Together, and it's available wherever you buy your books. Is that Absolutely. And if you go to our site, actually, mike-robbins.com forward slash together, there's a page there that tells you all about the book. And when you order it from that place, you can get it on Amazon or wherever we link to. But there's some, uh, some free bonus material that people get when they get it there. There's a, a six-part audio uh, course that I created to go right along with the book that people get for free when they order it from that page on our site. And just for clarification, that dropped yesterday, right? The book is now available? It's now available. It came out uh, April uh, 21st. And so, yeah, anywhere you get books or audio books or eBooks, you can get it. Thank you very much. Mike Robbins, you've been a pure pleasure here. Uh, Amy and I will be back with a few final thoughts after this. Thanks, Mike. And this is Transformation Thursday. 
To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to TransformationThursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review it's free and it does help get transformation thursday out to a larger audience finally transformation thursday is copyrighted material all rights reserved 2020 welcome back to transformation thursday i am amy stevens and my pronouns are she her and i'm penny sterling and my pronouns are she her as well and wow that was such a great interview with mike robbins amy yeah, I was, you know, I've, I heard of Mike through a mutual friend and did some research and, you know, we agreed to have him on, but that just blew every expectation away. And, you know, and it was really great to hear him talk because with his privilege, he can do so much more than we can do, Penny. So, and I know that's part of your takeaway. Isn't yeah, it? My, yeah, my takeaway is uh, we live in a society where people who, uh, where people like Mike, this is gender, white, heterosexual men. That's a mouthful. It is. Uh, or, or we just go, people like Mike, that's, a, that's less of a mouthful. Are the, their voices carry more than ours. And they are going to have to be, first off, make the noise, uh, call attention to the inequality, and then step aside for, for us to get anything. And it looks like, as far as I can tell, Mike is doing exactly what needs to be done in all of those areas. Yeah, in he he walks the walk, he talks the talk, and he writes the books about it. So I mean, he's he's definitely doing his part. But you know what I took away from that is you know, but he's working with companies that are affecting this change. And in our current political environment, if you look at the federal level right now, you know, in the way equality is spread across the states, the federal government is really rolling back stuff where there's individual states who are taking action, but the but the people that are really pushing for equality at the federal level right now are large companies. They're, they're your Fortune 500 companies, your medium-sized companies that are employing LGBTQIA plus people. And they realize the benefit from having us in their organizations, buying their products. And they're figuring out a way that, hey, not only can they monetize us, which is fine because it's, you know, we have money to spend, some of us. That's where this push for equality is going to come from. It's going to come from corporations. It's going to come from people seeing that, hey, everybody's just people. Just like Mike said, I love that analogy of the iceberg and getting below the waterline because as you get to know people on a deeper level we're just people we are just people but uh not everybody can throw a curveball like mike and not just <laughs> not just baseball related he's he can he, he threw a couple of curveballs to us things that we need to think about uh things that even you and i he keeps on saying like acts like we're some sort of thought leaders here i i really i can barely think at all let alone lead in it uh but it's just it's just fantastic to have him here i'm so glad that we got him on and uh i think this is a great place to say good night amy we, i'm really energized and i'm really excited about things well well penny i think this is a great place to wrap up what do you think i think everything is a great place to wrap up except all for right. not, that, that was a stupid thing for me to say why don't i just say yes it was a great place to wrap up and i just messed it up so uh, i'm gonna stop talking now you continue on if you want but as far as i'm concerned this podcast is over good night amy good night penny <laughs> <laughs>